another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of ChristianGospelChurch.org. And together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, I'm so excited about this side story that we're about to do because unlike some of the other side stories, this is also, if you really stop and think about it, it's a side story, yet also it is literally the foundation of what would become William Branham's early theology, you know, from the early, from the late 1940s and early 1950s. So we're doing a sideshow that's not really a sideshow. You're right, John. This is a really an, an integral component to to everything we're talking about and it's really going to uh, especially set up well a couple more episodes that we're going to talk about to add some depth to to what's coming coming next uh, but today we're going to uh, talk about a very important figure that William Branham meets uh, really towards the very early days of the healing revivals in 1947 William Branham had met Gordon Lindsay. He's not the figure we're talking about today, but he met Gordon Lindsay, and and he took he came on and more or less became William Branham's publicist and his campaign manager, starting in late 1947, and he started opening up doors for William Branham uh, to branch out the healing revival to even more people. And before Gordon Lindsay, William Branham he had been working with W. E. Kidston and Raymond Hoxtra. Really, they were the main part of his campaign team, Jack Moore a little bit. And they had mainly been preaching in oneness, uh, Pentecostal, and UPC churches up into 1947. But once Gordon Lindsay took over, uh, he was able to open doors for William Branham to start preaching in the Assemblies of God churches and the Trinitarian uh, sects of Pentecostalism. Uh, and he started doing that in Canada and across the United States. And in the last couple months of 1947, that's when William Branham was up in Canada and sparked the Latter Rain Movement. And then in January 1948, so while the people up in the Sharon Orphanage are still fasting, you know, the, the Latter Rain revival itself has not quite started yet, uh, William Branham goes to Miami for, the, for Florida for the winter. And while he's there, he holds some meetings, and he happens to meet a man named F.F. F. Bosworth at those meetings. And that's the man we're going to kind of talk about today. And John, like you mentioned, up until F.F. F. Bosworth had a really bad stroke in 1956, and finally he passed away in 1958, he was one of the most important figures uh, in William Branham's circle in those years. Absolutely. And for the healing revival in general, Bosworth was so fundamentally important. Um, I've written a book on the the life and times and the interesting connivery of John Alexander Dowie. And in the Zion cult that John Dowie started, F.F. Bosworth was a key figure. And, you know, before any of this had happened, Bosworth was deeply connected to Dowie. And um, Bosworth is so deeply important to the revivals themselves, the early revivals that predate William Branham or 
more to the point predate William Branham's fame because there's a lot of William Branham's history that has been erased. We actually don't know where William Branham was actually speaking in many of the cases, except for what hasn't been erased, which is quite interesting to me. But Bosworth was um, a key figure in uh, John Alexander Dowie's Zion sect that was called the Christian Catholic Church. And we'll get into that a bit deeper here later in the show. But Bosworth was a recognized name, and his recognition came mostly through Dowie. And once Dowie had died and the Christian Catholic Church was scattered, there were a lot of people that would open their doors to Dowie because Dowie was a familiar face in the sect. And there were even non-Dowie cult members who would entertain the idea of Bosworth coming in because he was deeply connected to Pentecostalism. Yeah, you know, Bosworth is is just such a very important and very popular figure, uh, even in the message, especially in the message. I know in my sect of the message, John, we kind of looked at Bosworth as the grandfather of the message, maybe, or as one of William Branham's key predecessors. Uh, uh, William Branham referred to him as Daddy Bosworth. Uh, that's that's the title that he gave him and would, would refer to him during the healing revival. So you can find William Branham on tape calling him Daddy Bosworth. So he was a... Uh, he was just a very important figure. Uh, so in, in some sense, it was almost like William Branham's adopted father a little bit. Uh, the father maybe he wished he had. Uh, right. And in the message, F.F. F. Bosworth is an incredibly beloved figure. Uh, and so, you know, the mere act of kind of critically examining Bosworth is a little bit taboo for us, John. <laughs> right. And so I, I know I myself, I'm a little cautious in drawing conclusions about Bosworth. And, but I do think there's some things that we should look at that tended to be glossed over in the message that we just, we never looked about, we never looked at, we never talked about, we just kind of right. pretended it wasn't there. Um, but and you things know, that we definitely should try to take into consideration now that we're out of the message. There are a lot of people who are interested in listening to our show because of the white supremacy and the criminal aspects of William Branham's past, but this is a much more complicated and complex ball of string than anybody can fathom or realize. It's not necessarily that Bosworth is connected to the criminal or the white supremacy, although we're probably going to get into some of the questionable white supremacy stuff with Bosworth. But Bosworth, if you take Roy E. Davis as the mentor for William Branham's white supremacy and some of his doctrinal positions that he learned in Roy Davis's church. Those were key elements of William Branham's makeup of what would become, you know, his cult of personality. Well, Bosworth is the, literally the foundation for William Branham's religious side. And Bosworth is really just a proxy for John Alexander Dowie's religious stance. So a lot of the positions that we see um, John Alexander Dowie taken his ministry, we're going to see those replicated in William Branham's ministry, and they were replicated using, you know, Bosworth as this conduit for taking Dowie, the doctrine of Dowie and putting the doctrine of Dowie into mainstream again through William Branham. So there's actually very, very little out there on the life of F.F. F. Bosworth, just very little writings. And most of what we know about him comes to us um, from stories that have been handed down to us, passed down to us. Uh, and then 
his own writings, really. There's not really any books or resources on Bosworth out there that I personally would consider scholarly. Um, he's mentioned in passing here and there in a few scholarly books, but for the most part, everything out there on him was either wrote by himself or his friends or his family. So I, I kind of have to take a, a lot of what's in those books with a grain of salt, because, you know, it's pretty clear it's being wrote by his, you know, closest friends and supporters, right? There is one book worth mentioning that I do recommend people read if they're interested in Bosworth. Um, it advertises itself as a critical examination of the ministry of F.F. F. Bosworth, and it's entitled F.F. F. Bosworth, The Man Behind Christ the Healer, written by Roscoe Barnes III. And while it is advertised as a critical examination, it is critical from the standpoint of somebody who is deeply, deeply in favor of Bosworth, somebody who is more critical than that, they're going to think this is praise of Bosworth. From you know, from my perspective as somebody on the outside looking in, it is um, it's very highly favorable, but it is the closest that we have to a critical examination. Yeah. So besides the stories handed down to us, like I said, most of what we know comes really from. Uh, a book that that he wrote, and there's a book here called Christ the Healer. I have I have a copy of it, um, and Bosworth wrote this book in the 1920s, and a, a good bit of what we know about him and his beliefs come from this book, uh, and that's probably actually the way that most Pentecostals are even familiar with, with Bosworth. This book is very popular in yes. Pentecostalism, actually, um, and most people who know F.F. F. Bosworth know him because of this book actually and so uh so since there is so little about his life i know myself i'm a little careful kind of making any too strong a judgments on him but i'm especially interested in how he ended up working with william branham and what was going on before that and so just kind of diving into his backstory i know bosworth he became a christian according to his testimony in 1893 he was attending a holiness church in nebraska at the time and he eventually gets married and after he gets married, something very interesting happens to me, John. Um, this is, to me, this is perhaps more interesting than him meeting up with William Branham. This this is probably the most interesting part of his life to me. Um, he's reading a newspaper article, and it's advertising that John Alexander Dowie wants to build Zion. Uh, and Bosworth's really taken up with the idea that, that Dowie is going to rebuild Zion. And so Bosworth moves to Zion, and he joins Alexander Dowie's group about 1901, the same year that Dowie started to, to build Zion. So that that's pretty interesting. And he was in Dowie's group for up for about ten years, up until after Dowie died, even. And I think what's really interesting to me about this part, John, is that Bosworth joins Dowie's church really right at the time that he is going off the deep end. Really, when it seems like Dowie's just really starting to really lose his marbles. Um, yeah, it, that's interesting to me. It really is, because there is a part of me that is highly skeptical whenever I see somebody in the lights, cameras, action, healing, revival, and making a lot of money, which we can see that Bosworth, you know, he, at least for a period of time, he was in that arena. But... To join Dowie's sect, at the time that Dowie was so insane, you, he really, Bosworth, I truly believe that he was 
a uh, he was a convert to Dowie. He was not under any sort of um, you know ill intent to join John Alexander Dowie's sect because you had to forfeit a lot of your own money to even join into the Zion sect. And what's really interesting as we continue with further episodes of this podcast, if you look at like the New Apostolic Reformation, there are many trails and paths of the New Apostolic Reformation that lead to its history. Well, most of those paths converge in Zion as John Alexander Dowie had just completely lost his mind. Yeah, and I I think you're right, John. I'm of the opinion that F.F. Bosworth was a true believer in this stuff. Like I certainly at this point, I don't really see any indication that that he's anything but a, a true believer in what Dowie's doing and in these things that are happening here in Zion. And to me, the fact that he joins at this point, uh, I mean, by by 1901, I mean, there is just no question that what Dowie is doing at this point, Zion is a this thing's a full fledged cult. It's probably the most powerful cult in the United States at this point in time. Um, it's it's just crazy stuff that's going on there. Uh, Dowie is starting to introduce... He's talking about having seven wives at this point in time. Um, Dowie has went totally, totally head over heels into British Israelism at this point. And that's really his whole framework for building Zion, right? They believe they're part of the ten lost tribes of Israel. And they're, re, they're building Zion and going to you know come up with plans to rebuild the temple. And everyone moving into Zion, and this is the, everyone moving into Zion has to sign thousand year leases to get into Zion. Um, that, that's something that just is, uh, it's incredible. It kind of puts me in mind of the Sea Org today, John, where they sign, you know, million year contracts to join the Sea Org. Well, to get into Zion, you had to sign thousand year leases because they, they thought they were going to live, they basically thought they were going to live out the whole millennium in Zion and they they believed the millennium was was imminent um and this was almost phase 1 of the millennium they were going to rebuild Zion and then uh, Jerusalem itself was going to be restored shortly thereafter the city of Zion itself is worthy of a whole podcast episode because this was not Christianity or even a cult as most people would think of them today this was very very militant and Whenever, you know, you mentioned this was the biggest cult of the time. Well, this is quite honestly, this is probably the biggest and most powerful cult in the history of the United States. We're talking about a group of people who wanted to forcibly convert the United States. And they were trying to recreate Zion, as you mentioned. They were literally trying to reenact or enact all of the... um, prophecies that are in, you know, the end time prophecies that you find in the book of Revelation, etc. They're trying to stage them in the United States, forcibly convert the United States, and they send an entire army of people, and they actually had an army. They sent an entire army of converts into New York City, door to door, with the intent to go to every single house in New York City and blanketly convert the entire city into this cult yeah it, it, it's really amazing stuff to look at and it's super interesting to to investigate and again they're they're operating within the the framework of british israelism is 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 really how they're doing all this they believe again they're the 10 lost tribes of israel um 
there is the concept within British Israelism that even the uh, the the royal family of England is descended from uh, King David, so the House of David's line is still on the throne, uh, and and there uh, they have plans to really recapture the Holy Land, uh, somehow get control of Jerusalem, and even rebuild the temple and everything in Jerusalem. And so they they've they've built an entire end time theology around restoring Israel. Yeah. Um, that it's a very interesting, and if you read a lot of those things, you'll find some some interesting similarities, John, to uh, things that kind of end up in the message in slightly different forms. Uh, but anyway, that that's going on. Bosworth is in that, and there's all kinds of stuff going on there. And and the thing is, most likely, um, most likely Bosworth suffered an incredible financial loss through all of this, John. Um, because the whole thing in Zion, the whole thing is a religious Ponzi scheme, right? Um, these people, Bosworth's got people to put millions of dollars into Zion, right? He's opened a bank in Zion. Everybody who lives in Zion has to put all their money in the bank, but it's a fake bank ran by Dowie, and he's just taken all their money. And eventually the whole thing just completely collapses in, um, Everybody loses everything in the bank. The banks start foreclosing and taking people's property because they leased it. They didn't own it. Yeah. The whole thing goes south pretty bad. Well, even leading up to it, and again, this is, it's much bigger than this conversation today, but leading up to the building of Zion, Dowie is, he's actually just inches away from being bankrupt. He'd invested so much money and he holds this big money-making campaign. Give me give me money. We need more money. We're going to forcibly convert New York City. And Dowie actually takes that money that could have paid off some of his debt, and he invests it into what he considers a business opportunity to go to <laughs> forcibly convert New York City. It doesn't work, and they invested millions of dollars. So uh, and Bosworth was a key figure in that attempt to take over New York City. Bosworth was Dowie's, one of Dowie's right-hand men, and he's there in New York City doing this. So Bosworth invests literally everything he owns into this cult. That was a cult requirement. Give me all your money and you can join us. Then he goes and tries to take over New York City. It fails, and they lost back and this again this is back in you know what 1905 really early 1900s i think the i think the figure was like 7 million dollars and i'd have to look it up but we're talking a lot of money that was lost right with inflation i mean we're probably talking billions right is what that right. would account to it's I mean, a lot it's of a, money it is a vast amount of money that 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 dowie has extorted from these people and has completely blown um, and and they they lose everything. Most most of them lose most everything. If you know, as this thing happens, and you know, as Dowie's cult, um, you know, as Dowie dies, as the money all disappears, as as all this happens, I can just imagine. And again, we don't really have any direct documentation on this, but I I just can kind of imagine that Bosworth is probably sitting there trying to figure out what in the world just happened to me, like what. This, this, okay, the millennium, instead of the millennium starting, uh, I just lost everything. And so Bosworth is probably going through that as Dowie dies. And he's probably looking for answers, trying to make uh, some sort of explanation 
uh, or answer to him for what he's been through. And I think, John, you and I can even relate to that just a little <laughs> bit, right? <laughs> I, I was I was actually just fixing to say that. It's very much like I see it with the cult today. I saw it. it if you even take the history of the message cult, William Branham died, and then you've got all these people that invested their entire lives into this thing. And then to realize that with his death, there were prophecies that literally cannot be fulfilled because he's dead. And yet they've invested their entire lives, and a lot of them invested their entire life savings into this thing through donations, etc. Well, there's this human attempt to reconcile what just happened by still holding on to key elements of whatever was learned in this very false thing. So what you find is people move forward by clinging to these false, this false foundation. And um, the same thing happened here with Bosworth towards the end after Dowie's death, there was this swarm of quote unquote prophets to Dowie to take over Dowie's empire and one of those that came and gained a strong foothold for almost a year was Charles Fox Parham. And Parham comes, he forms a strong division in Zion City, and literally there's this growing faction that's collecting key figures from Dowie's sect. Bosworth is one of the key figures that joined the split in the faction that was an attempt to take over Zion City. So Bosworth is, you know, trying to take this over and and then run it with uh, Charles Fox Parham. Right. And again, we don't have, you know, obviously any documentation about what's going through all these people's heads as it's happening. But, you know, it, it seems to me pretty reasonable that, you know, Bosworth and other people in Zion are looking for answers. Parham comes and some of them think, okay, Parham has the answers um, to to take us beyond this whatever terrible thing that's just happened to us. And so Bosworth and, and quite a few others, they do like what they hear Charles Fox Parham saying, and they, they kind of jump on his bandwagon next. And so during those years that Bosworth was living in Zion, uh, the Azusa Street Revival happens in Los Angeles, it starts. And um, this is really going to kick off the, the whole Pentecostal movement. And Bosworth and other people from Zion, they travel... Um, with Parham from Zion, so Zion Parham leaves Zion in September 1906, and he goes in October over to Azusa Street. And it seems that Bosworth and other figures from Zion uh, travel over there with him. Bosworth actually was at uh, Azusa Street, uh, you know, not the day the revival started, but you know, shortly a few months after it started, he he shows up there along with Charles Parham. And so he becomes also a very popular and important figure in early Pentecostalism, too. And I think it's worth noting here that this is how the Dowieites, um, in one way, come in and, and become a very important faction within early Pentecostalism. Because obviously, um, Bosworth was not the only Dowieite at Azusa Street uh, at the beginning when these things were, were kicking off. Right, and I've got um, some of my Pentecostal historian friends will look at this picture and say, it's all fake, this is all fake. You have to understand that when the Azusa Street Revival broke out, it shook you know, fundamentalist Pentecostalism or fundamentalist religion in the United States. And 
there was this thing happening that everybody kind of at first was skeptical of, and then everybody wanted to join into it. And it went on for months and months, almost a year, if I remember correctly. And what happened was people who were there, who was, who were receiving the quote unquote outpouring, if what you call this thing was an outpouring of the spirit. And what happened was people who were there began to take precedence over people that weren't there. And so you had men who came after the fact who wanted their picture to be taken at this place. And I've had Pentecostal historians, as soon as I hold up that photo, they say that's stage that came way after the fact. And it did. We just don't know how long after the fact was it during the revival, etc. Right. Because we, we do have pretty strong indication that Bosworth could have been there as early as October 1906, which is, again, which is at least six months after the revival started. So it's certainly not the very beginning. So he, he could have been there that early. Um, and I know that with within Pentecostalism, um, a lot of people do do point to him being there as and kind of look to him at, in some sense, as one of the, in one way, almost one of the founding fathers of Pentecostalism as a whole. Uh, maybe one of the junior founding fathers, I guess you might say it, like yeah. that, of, of Pentecostalism. And so, yeah, it, it's really important, though, just to just to acknowledge that there were Dowieites there at the very beginning and very, in the very early days. And by beginning, I mean, you know, the first year or two of things happening. There are the very early days of, of, of the Pentecostal movement blowing up and taking shape. And Bosworth is... One of multiple conduits that John Alexander Dowie's ideas uh, are able to enter into Pentecostalism, um, not just his you know divine healing and and views of miracles and things of that nature, but also especially his British Israel views. Now Charles Parham also was a British Israelite; he believed in British Israelism. But these are these are the vehicles in which these ideas enter into early Pentecostalism. And also white supremacy, because the British Israelism doctrine was one of the key elements of the makeup of the KKK. KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, a lot of people don't realize this, but it was it touted itself as a religious organization more than it did a political, and this was one of the fundamental tiers of the Klan. It's not to say that all British Israelites were in the Klan, uh, but... <sighs> The ideology of the British Israelites was very popular and appealing to the Klan, and a, a large chunk of the people in the Klan uh, adopted British Israel views because it complemented uh, the racial things they wanted to do. And it, it's with it's as it takes that turn, as it's adopted by these white supremacist figures, that uh, British Israelism slowly and gradually ends up birthing the Christian identity theology, which I, I look forward. We'll do a full episode on that at some point, how all that happens. But yes, the, at, at the time, there is a British Israelism and the racist views of the Ku Klux Klan are, are cousin ideas at this point in time, um, and they haven't fully diverged. They're, they're still somewhat the same people in the same places. And I'll put the caveat into the conversation just because I can already tell you where people's minds are going with this. We don't have any strong indication whatsoever that Bosworth was in the Klan, but we're going no. to be talking about some very unusual white supremacy milestones in Bosworth's life that, you know, the listeners can can gather their own opinion from it. 
sure. And so, so Bosworth, he was at Azusa Street, and you know, that fact alone makes him a little bit of a Pentecostal legend. And as Pentecostalism starts to take shape coming out of Azusa Street, Bosworth, he eventually leaves Zion, he moves to Texas, and he starts a church there. And from that church, he becomes one of the founding fathers of the Assemblies of God in 1914. So, you know, very, very prominent man uh, as you come into these, these early years of Pentecostalism. And the Assemblies of God, you know, if I'm correct in my understanding and what I've read, it was really the first fully Pentecostal denomination that came together. Yeah, and, and by that, I mean they believed in tongues as the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Exactly. And, you know, back to the white supremacy interesting facts right before the assemblies of god has formed bosworth is holding a revival in texas and it's a integrated a racially integrated revival so he's got whites and blacks in the revival bosworth was recognized because of this event he's recognized as being a non-white supremacist he is brutally beaten by the white supremacists in Texas. Texas had a strong Klan faction, so it was likely the Klan that he was beaten by. And he did not get killed by the Klan, which is, you know, we don't know what happened. We just know he was brutally beaten. We don't know what they said to him when they let him live. But right after this, Bosworth becomes a founding father of the Assemblies of God in 1914. And... The Assemblies of God is recognized for bringing an end to the interracial focus of the Pentecostal movement because the AOG became predominantly white at, you know, at this time in its early years. So here's Bosworth holding these very integrated revivals, gets beaten by the Klan, and then suddenly he's in an all-white denomination, the founder of an all-white denomination. Right. And, you know, after after the Klan beat him and, and from the newspaper accounts, Bosworth was severely beaten. This was a severe beating that he took uh, in Texas in 1911. Um, after he took that beating for holding the interracial revivals, I'm not aware of another interracial revival he held. He seemed to have really transitioned to go and started preaching in the northern states, you know, in the predominantly white states uh, thereafter. He, yeah. he continued to live in Texas, but he, he seemed to – he seems to have stopped preaching um, to black people more or less um, – after being beat by the Klan or the white supremacists in Texas. And and again, you know, we, we can certainly understand what intimidation would do to a person, right? After they probably threatened his life, they've probably told him, you ever do this again, you're going to die. So I, I'm sure he, he somewhat maybe took that a little bit to heart. Uh, and he has wife, he's got children, right? So Yeah, it's interesting because you don't see Bosworth emerge as this figure that is um, trying to bring the racists together. He remains a key figure in Texas. He's got, you know, ties to the Dallas. Uh, he's in the Dallas, head of the Dallas church uh, that's recognized in Pentecostalism. He has deep roots in Texas. I, we've got a 1910, I believe it is, census uh, report saying that he was living in Waco, Texas, which is extremely interesting. Um, side conversation we could have, but you don't see... Bosworth emerge as being recognized for trying to bring the races together. Instead, what you see after his beating is he just kind of discards the notion that blacks and whites could be together in the services. 
And so after after that happens, 1914, he's involved in, in starting the Assemblies of God. And my understanding is he was, for a brief time, at least the director of the entire Assemblies of God denomination. So uh, again, very influential. He held the highest position in the Assemblies of God at the time. Um, and he stayed with the Assemblies of God until 1918. Uh, but he left when they formalized their belief that speaking in tongues was the evidence of the Holy Spirit. That's that's really what caused him to exit, according to you know everything we can read. And you know in, that's really important too, John. The fact that Bosworth did not believe tongues was the evidence of the Spirit. It's very important for the message. And in my sect, for sure, we Bosworth featured very importantly into our thinking and our our mythos of of what we believed. Bosworth is how a lot of people in the message trace the message all the way back to Azusa Street without bringing in tongues as the evidence. Bosworth is the vehicle that we do that because in the message, no one believes tongues is the evidence. At least nobody I ever knew in the message right. believed that. Um, but the rest of Pentecostalism does, right? And Bosworth is the figure that the message uses to get ourselves all the way back into Azusa Street, but not believe tongues as the evidence, okay? He's the he's the conduit through which we do that. And, you know, the message, honestly, the message truly believes it is the true branch of Pentecostalism, uh, certainly where I came from. We, we're the true branch of Pentecostalism, we would believe. Um, we, we were at Pentecost in Bosworth, right? That's, that's kind of how we would look at it. We would even say it this way, you know, in my sect of the message, John, we were pretty straight up about this stuff. Um, and we were we were the true descendants of Azusa Street through Bosworth. You know, it's interesting because I speaking in tongues in William Branham's cult of personality is somewhat taboo. You don't see a lot of people doing it because there were versions of William Branham's stage persona where he denounced this. Not as you know, he understood that it was a biblical thing, but. He was so strongly against the Pentecostal notion that this was evidence that he would actually speak unfavorably about tongues. And we have a network of support groups, and one of the people who left the cult of personality had come to the point in his escape where he was starting to break free from the mind control that happens in these things. And when you start to awaken, you start to critically think about a lot of things. And he had the gift of interpretation, and their church was one of the few message churches that actually had somebody who spoke in tongues in it. And he said he was in a service, and I think it was a female, she started speaking in tongues, and he said, I could hear what she was saying, but it was just, it had no meaning. It was just, praise God, the service is good, you know, whatever it was. It wasn't, in his now critical opinion of it, it really wasn't that important. And he said, I really stopped thinking about it, and I started thinking about all of the really, really wrong things with this service and the doctrine and the teaching. And I, he said, my mind just wandered, and I kind of tuned it out, and it, when she stopped, there was no interpretation, and everybody stopped. Well, where's the interpretation? And he stood up and said, I'm sorry, people. I heard it, but I'll be honest. I didn't pay much attention to it. <laughs> and that was like, that was one of his last um, sermons there. But going back to the timeline, William Branham is working deeply with the United Pentecostal Church in the early years, you know, 19, probably 1930. 
30s because we don't have that history and Davis was trying to join his church into this. But definitely by 1945, he's working with the UPC, leaders of the UPC. By 1947, he's writing in one of the newsletters, as we've found. And the UPC was very strongly adamant that speaking in tongues was the evidence of the Holy Ghost. It's very clear that once William Branham connects with F.F. Bosworth, that is the point in which he abandons this idea. So Bosworth is the one who literally built the framework of William Branham's version of Pentecostalism that did not need the tongues. You're, you're quite right there. Bosworth is very important to ultimately defining uh, some of the doctrines that will become the message. William Branham does appear to take a change uh, of theology when he comes into contact with Bosworth. And we actually have that from Branham's own words in, in some of his books that we, we could reference to. Um, and you're you're right, John. You know, it's the, the William Branham, they did seem to be trying to integrate with broader Pentecostalism in the 20s and 30s. Obviously, the UPC itself didn't exist until 1945. Uh, but the predecessor organizations of the UPC, William Branham and Roy Davis, do seem to have been working in some degree with those groups as ministers from those groups were, were interacting with them, preaching at their churches and so forth and vice versa. They were preaching it at some of their churches. So uh, there, there was something going on there uh, way back, uh, but they never were able to really pull off the merger that they were looking for to merge the Pentecostal Baptist Church of God in with, with these organizations that would ultimately f create the UPC. Yeah. So, Bosworth, you're right. He didn't believe in tongues as the evidence of the Holy Spirit, and and after he left the mission, uh, the Assemblies of God over it, he joined another group called the Christian Missionary Alliance, and that group is a group that actually predates Pentecostalism. I I believe A. B. Simpson is the man who formed that group, who was a very prominent healing evangelist uh, in the the later 1800s, and he uh, and that group adopted a lot of views that were also accepted in Pentecostalism, uh, but they never embraced what happened at Azusa Street. So they're kind of a pre-Azusa Street Pentecostal group. And so the, Bosworth goes, he fits in pretty well there, and he um, he ends up going as a touring evangelist sponsored by their group. And he starts holding these amazingly big revivals, doesn't he, John? I mean, just huge revivals. Um, I got some pictures of some of them here. The, he's going all over the place. He's having, you know, blowout crowds of of ten thousand plus people come to the revivals, and he starts doing that. Um, 1918, 1919, all the way up into the early nineteen thirties. He's doing that. Yeah, and it's very big to consider this because a lot of people look at William Branham as holding the biggest revivals and really sparking you know, the post-World War II healing revival, well, where Branham started his ministry holding two nights or even two weeks, we've got Bosworth holding two months of revivals. We're talking, if you take one of these revivals and take all the number of the seats that can be filled and the people that would exchange in the seats, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people that he's speaking to, you know, during the early 20s. Right, and Bosworth, so he's already got, uh, before he meets William Branham, he's already got a formula, a winning formula for holding these revivals. He he knows how to f format the performances, you might say, format the event. Um, 
he's got a whole framework, a whole long history of doing this that he can then impart his experience on this to William Branham. Um, and so he's, he's, he's just bringing a whole lot with him. Uh, when he ultimately comes into contact with with William Branham, and he holds a lot of really interesting revivals, uh, and, and a lot of a lot of interesting things go on at them, John. Um, one thing, so this book, Christ Christ the Healer, um, there's there's some other books by Bosworth too that kind of all end up integrated into this one book, but this book is published really at the height of his popularity in the 1920s. I think this comes out first in 1924, and there's a second edition that comes out in 1948 after he meets Branham. But um, this book really summarizes uh, Bosworth's views, and if you want to get a solid idea of what he's preaching, what he's teaching, how he looks at things, this this book's a great place to start, and. This book here, for example, I ordered actually from Kenneth Copeland Ministries. So this gives you an idea of who right. still likes these views today or where these views have went. Um, what he does here, John, is there's actually a whole chapter in this book wrote by E.W. Kenyon. And Kenyon was at um, – he came to Zion, why Dowie was there, why Bosworth was there. Kenyon and uh, Bosworth are actually – connected to each other and he actually gets connect permission from Kenyon to reprint Kenyon's material as a chapter in this book. And so we we know we know exactly where Bosworth's ideas come from. They come from Kenyon, they come from Dowie, they're also influenced somewhat by Parham. And they find their way into this book. And just a quick summary, you know, he is preaching in here. Um, if if you look through this book, you'll find that he he's preaching a lot of what will eventually turn into what people call name it and claim it. Uh, but in this book, he still calls it positive confession. That's actually the phrase they use to refer to the belief at this time, positive confession. And he actually starts to, he introduces, this is one of the first times I'm aware of it, he introduces the phrase word of faith to describe some of his views here, some of what he's teaching. And if you want to, know how he's preaching it just catch this book and you can read it page 136 on down he really explains um his views on positive confession on word of faith uh divine healing what was the year that was written so the original one was 1924 there is a second edition in 1948 this is the 1948 uh the fully expanded edition where in which he has merged multiple books the 1924 edition is kind of slim um, it's it's just got uh, it's basically a few tracks, but the 1948 he takes and he bundles most all of his prominent writings together into a single edition, Christ the Healer, uh, and and all of his teachings are in there as more or less a, a full compendium. So while this is all going in the background um, of the story behind William Branham in 1924, there's some other history that is going to converge and basically become a key element of William Branham's personal makeup. In 1924, you've got Bosworth who's touring in these healing revivals that are widely popular. In 1924, the Klan in Indiana is growing to its supreme height of popularity. And in May of 1924... D.C. Stevenson at the Cadle Tabernacle, where William Branham and Jim Jones held their revivals, Cadle was the Klan headquarters in 1924. 
D.C. Stevenson says, God help the man who issues a proclamation of war against the Klan in Indiana now. We are going to clux Indiana as she has never been cluxed before. I'll appeal to the ministers of Indiana and do the praying for the Ku Klux Klan, and I'll do the scrapping for it. And the fiery cross is going to burn at every crossroads in Indiana as long as there's a white man left in the state. So this is 1924. D.C. Stevenson, who's the most powerful Klan figure in the nation, in the largest Klan organization in the nation, in the home of um, G.T. Haywood, who is a black Pentecostal minister, well-respected in Pentecostal circles as one of the key figures who uh, led the charge for oneness Pentecostalism. And Haywood had published a tract called The Victim of the Flaming Sword, which somebody has sent us a copy of, and I'll put the copy up in the video version of this podcast. And 1924, the same time that book was published that you held up, The Knights of the Flaming Sword, which was formed by William Joseph Simmons, the head of the original Ku Klux Klan. Roy Davis was his second in command. Davis helps form this, and they join together. And the reason this is important to the Bosworth story is that when they came into Jeffersonville, Indiana, to hold their initial revivals that would literally create William Branham's first church, they held it with Ralph Rader, who was a very close family member to Paul Rader, who was in the Christian Missionary Alliance that Bosworth was also preaching through. So you've got all this web of connections from not only the white supremacy groups to the religious foundations to the organizations to the um, you know to the Klan and the Klan headquarters. That's May of 1924 that D.C. Stevenson makes this announcement, and then we have. Um, you know, they had to have organized this and prepped for it. So the organization of Bosworth to come to Klan headquarters would have been shortly after he makes this announcement that they're going to bring religion into helping the Klan survive. They had contracted with Bosworth to hold an entire two months of revivals at Klan headquarters. And Bosworth comes to the Cato Tabernacle, and he's preaching sermons with titles like How the Church May Be Avenged of Her Adversary, right after D.C. Stevenson had made this announcement. Now, again, we can't say that Bosworth was in the Klan, but he was a recognized member of one of the predominantly white denominations of faith coming to the Klan headquarters for an entire two months of revivals. Yeah, you know, I I I kind of go back and forth cuz you know, I you know, if I put it on a scale, right? So, you know, he's in some articles he's been beaten by white supremacists, right, for having interracial revivals. So, obviously at a point in time he is not in favor, you know, the clan doesn't like him. Obviously, they took him out and and beat him, silly. Yeah. Uh, but then you come about 10 years down the road and he's when he comes to Indiana, for example, you know, instead of having revivals with G.T. Haywood, right, <laughs> and the other prominent people like that, the people of color in that are in Pentecostalism in Indiana, he chooses to have his revival at Cato Tabernacle, which is the headquarters of the Ku Klux Klan. So 
if nothing else, it kind of makes a statement that um, this is the side of the aisle I'm choosing to be on, right? So I, I think there is at least a statement in that that, that Bosworth is acknowledging. Um, I, I, I don't want to get beat again, maybe. You know, I don't know exactly where you put it, but he, he's definitely, for whatever reason, siding with the white supremacist segregation opinions that he needs to be stay away from i guess from the from more of the black pentecostals unfortunately that does seem to be the direction that he took um and then as far as you know the connection back you're right there is an interesting connection between bosworth and roy davis and that connection is through the raider brothers john um the Raider brothers uh, did indeed tour with Bosworth during his healing revivals as part of the Missionary Alliance. We can find uh, newspaper articles of, the, of them holding meetings together. And then when Roy Davis comes to Indiana, uh, it is Ralph Raider who does um, really help stir his initial popularity in Jeffersonville when he makes his entrance into Indiana. So that that's really interesting stuff. Another interesting side fact, <clears throat> Roy, Roy Davis's denomination of faith that he created was like this big magnet that attracted everything from nails to <laughs> razor blades. And it was called the Pentecostal Baptist Church of God sect. In other words, I'm going to try to attract the Pentecostals. I'm going to try to attack attract the Baptist, the Church of God. William Branham also calls this the Missionary Baptist. And we've got the Missionary Alliance, and we got, uh, you know, we have Davis clearly holding revivals with people involved in the Missionary Alliance Church. Well, that was called, at some point in time, it was called the Missionary Baptist. We don't have much information because most of that history has been completely erased from time. But it appears as though there was some sort of attempt, at least, to try to bring the Christianary Mission Alliance together with Roy Davis's Pentecostal sect. Yeah, and I think for me, again, there's, there's so much of this is subjective. Uh, my my thought is if if Bosworth was working with the white supremacists, you know, during the twenties, it was probably seems to me it would be as a result of coercion or intimidation more than anything most likely that would be kind of that's kind of my opinion at the moment uh, on why why bosworth might be doing these things yeah my opinion i don't see bosworth as a white supremacist by no means and i don't even see him promoting white supremacy ideas other than some of the foundational elements such as british israelism i see bosworth as this somewhat innocent bystander that got brutally beaten and then something happens and he's either using the protection of the white supremacists not to get beaten again or he has became favorable to the idea that it, white supremacy can coexist in this Pentecostal world. So it's way more complicated than we can probably even explain in this episode. But I don't, I don't see Bosworth as being a, a racist either. It's just he is heavily influenced by racism, if, if I can say it like that. Right. And... So we, we have a pretty good idea overall, though, of, of Bosworth's views from his books and then from his history and his influences. He was influenced by Kenyon. He was influenced by Dowie. Uh, he was influenced by Parham. Um, and so he also actually spent some time working with John Lake as well, uh, Bosworth did. Uh, you'll find that as you, as you read through some different sources. So we really have a solid idea of where Bosworth's ideas and beliefs 
came from and who they were shaped by. Uh, and so he is an important conduit through which all of these ideas flow into the healing revivals as time comes. And he's also an important conduit for British Israel ideas to flow in. Um, and, and John, I, I don't know if you know this, but there's a, a minister named Russell Kelso Carter. He was a holiness minister in the late 1800s who worked with A.B. Simpson and, and some other figures back then. He he seems, from my research, seems to be one of the very first people to actually preach positive confession. So, you know, positive confession and these ideas even go back beyond Kenyon. And very interestingly, Russell Kelso Carter was also a British Israelite, and he also seems to be the figure that introduced what we would call serpent seed into British Israelism as well. So, um, you know, there, there's a conduit through which all of these ideas can flow through Bosworth down to William Branham. Um, yeah. And some of these ideas, we have documentation that Bosworth did, did believe them, did adhere to them, and then others we can only just kind of speculate whether Bosworth believed them or not. But he was certainly around people who, who believed those things. There are a lot of people who try to disconnect William Branham from the Word of Faith movement because Branham literally put such a black eye in American religion that everybody who's built these ministries, they try to separate from William Branham. But if you really take a step back and you look at what was introduced through these revivals, and in this case introduced to William Branham through F.F. F. Bosworth from John Alexander Dowie, it's like you've got this hill of snow and you're just dropping all of these marbles on the hill. And as they roll, they collect more snow, they grow, they become these massive, massive snowballs going down the hill. Well, these snowballs are these different movements within Christianity that emerge in the Word of Faith movement, the Kansas City Prophets. You've Literally all of these, all of these connections to William Branham's ministry would not exist without William Branham. And, you know, Kenneth Hagin, who was deeply involved with William Branham's early ministry, he was he's part of the revivals. He's in the Voice of Healing magazine. They emerge based on this platform that William Branham has introduced into mainstream through the teachings of Bosworth that were the teachings of John Alexander Dowie. Yeah, and in our next episode, we're, we're going to explore these divine healing beliefs and the word of faith healing beliefs uh, even more. And so, uh, and eventually I, we'll do a full episode on serpent seed and Christian identity theology too. And, you know, something very interesting in my sect of the message, John, is we did not believe positive confession or divine healing in our sect of the message the way that William <laughs> Branham and F.F. F. Bosworth taught it. Uh, somewhere along the way, we abandoned uh, their teaching. So that to me is incredibly interesting that we, 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 we drop that from our beliefs. Um, but, you know, it's essentially we, we took a kind of a high view of God's sovereignty and healing and we, we gradually had drifted back into a more Baptist way of looking at divine healing over the years in our sect of the message. But I'm not really sure how true that is for the rest of the message. Um, my, my take is that the rest of the message held pretty closely to the original divine healing and word of faith and positive confession beliefs of Bosworth. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really interested to, to look and explore that a little more in the next episode. Yeah, I would say if you look at word of faith, you see strong elements of the Manifest Sons of God doctrine. They are completely separate movements, don't get me wrong, but they're elements of 
Manifest Sons of God in the Word of Faith movement. And I would say the main sect went more towards the Manifest Sons of God theology that William Branham taught, and Word of Faith emerged from it using parts of it as a foundation. So you've got the two movements that are separate, but the main sect was definitely more on the Manifest Sons of God side. That, that makes sense. And that and uh, the same with us. We we went more down the manifested sons of God route too rather than the word of faith route. And in, in our next episode, I, I look forward to kind of getting into the nuances of that. Uh, yeah. So kind of coming back to Bosworth's story, you know, he was a prominent touring evangelist up until 1934. And then in 1934, something unusual happens. Bosworth just kind of disappears. Yes. Um, he just kind of drops off the face of the earth for about 10 years and... There's very little information about what happened for this 10-year period that he disappeared. But what what we can tell, the, you know, the little hints in the sources are that the Christian Missionary Alliance started to reject British Israelism in that time frame. And AOG and other groups are also starting to reject British Israelism. So British Israelism had originally came into Pentecostalism. From the early days, Parham himself was one, but there's this move to start moving away from British Israelism in this time frame. And as that happens, um, Bosworth kind of falls, gets on the outs of these groups, and he's still very committed to British Israel ideas. And so the alliance kind of forces him out of their group because he wouldn't give up British Israelism. That seems to be... Um, from the best that I can tell, the catalyst behind his disappearance. And so there's just a little tiny bit we know about that period of time, um, but it, it seems like Bosworth is very committed to his British Israel beliefs, uh, and that's the main catalyst for his disappearance and whatever's going on in these 10 years that he's off the radar. And he would have to be, right, because his doctrinal foundation was the doctrinal foundation of John Dowie, and Dowie's entire premise at the point of time in which <clears throat> Bosworth joined into the Dowie sect was British Israelism. So if you take away that, you've literally taken away Bosworth's entire foundation, so there's no way he's going to give it up. He's going to in instead try to find a means to re-inject British Israelism into mainstream, which he apparently does through William Branham. Right. And, you know, today, I mean, there is very little, very few groups out there that embrace British Israelism. It is pretty well a dead ideology. But it's hard to understate how important this was back in these days. This was a, in early Pentecostalism in, in these, and not just Pentecostalism, this view was held in multiple denominations at the time. This was a quite important uh, viewpoint, British Israelism. Not, not so much that it, uh, you know, it, it changed the world or anything like that. But it, the ideas that formed around British Israelism, those ideas still exist today. There are ideas birthed out of British Israelism that are still here today. But the core British Israel ideas have, have more or less died. And, and they start dying in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, but traces of that still continue on into, into the message and into you know, Pentecostalism and evangelical Christianity as a whole, some of the ideas, uh, especially a, a lot of the interest and focus on Israel and some of the views on end-time prophecies related to Israel, those viewpoints developed 
within British Israelism because of British Israelism, um, and they survived the death of the British Israel ideology and kind of got adopted into uh, other belief sets carried down to the present day. So that's something very interesting to me because I'm, like I've mentioned, John, I am so interested. I have tried to figure out where in the world did the stuff we believe in the message came from after I realized God hadn't sent it to William Branham by an angel. And uh, so I have, I have dug and dug and dug, and I have, I believe, very well traced a lot of uh, some of our, definitely a lot of our uh, focus on Israel ideas back to concepts that developed in British Israelism in the 1800s. Yeah. The the message cult's argument for this is, well, it was divinely inspired, and William Branham, yes, he learned it from other men, but it was a movement by God to introduce it to the nation. Well, that's okay if they're good ideas, right? But some of these are just so grossly incorrect that you know, there's no way that God would by any means try to further white supremacy or the foundational platforms that are pseudo-archaeology and completely incorrect. Yeah, so there, there's definitely, to me, to me, British Israelism is a very interesting subject, and I've, there is actually precious little scholarly research into British Israelism. Um, and I, I don't know, we still might do a full episode on British Israelism at some point, but there's there is lots of very interesting things here that uh, do do become very impactful in later years after British Israel British Israelism itself kind of fully dies. So, but yeah. any whatever the case, Bosworth's f- flying under the radar. We don't really know exactly what he's doing during these years. Um, there there is a little bit of time we know he's doing a radio program in Chicago in the in the in the mid thirties, but. That's really the only thing we know that he was really doing in this time for sure was that he was doing a little radio preaching. And so whatever, whatever the case, he, he kind of stays disappeared until about the same time that William Branham starts to rise in popularity. And it's 1944, 1945 that Bosworth reappears on the scene. Um, and right at the same time, William Branham's becoming popular. And so... How exactly that he comes into contact with William Branham is, to me, slightly mysterious, John. Um, there's something about the story that don't quite ring true to me, I guess, when I when I read it. And when we read the official accounts in A Man Sent from God, there's actually elements in this story that we can prove are not true about the circumstances around William Branham meeting F.F. F. Bosworth. So I really believe there's, there's more to the story... Um, then we're told. I think that's a fair assessment. I do too. <clears throat> you know, there's no way that William Branham didn't know of Bosworth being, you know, holding revivals with Davis and Caleb Ridley, you know, the Klan, the white supremacy. It's not that Bosworth was in the white supremacy, but they were revivalists at a time whenever Bosworth was the most famous revivalist in the nation. Upshaw was quite honestly the uh, second most famous congressman william d upshaw who's working with davis 1944-45 whenever bosworth reemerges is when you find congressman upshaw and roy davis being involved in the scandal in california where they're starting to build the sec- the third wave of the ku klux klan and then you know, there's no way that William Branham didn't didn't know of of uh, Bosworth. 
when Bosworth is in Chicago and he's doing these radio broadcasts and he's deeply involved with you know, Ralph Rader, we have William Branham going to Chicago with, likely with Davis, we don't know, but to Chicago to the World's Fair to see Rader. Right, and let me read, let me read the uh, the story in here, John, just a, f- a paragraph or so of, of when William Branham meets F.F. F. Bosworth. And, um, let, let me read, the, to me this is a, an, the whole, this is just really interestingly worded even, so let me read this to you. It says, January of 1948, this is from a man sent from God, January 1948 found us leaving our frozen homeland for a southward pilgrimage to the winter paradise of Miami, Florida. However, our motive was not a winter vacation, as was that of the convulsive mobs who soaked their money in the horse races, dog races, <laughs> beach extravagance, and general sinful revelry. So they had a high view of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> he says, but we went to minister to the needy population, uh, even in that beautiful nature of Eden. And so he goes on here and say... Um, not all, of course, were there for those sinful activities, but many of them went away whole. Here it was our privilege to meet Avok Hagopian, a young Christian Arminian who had been anointed in his native country with a similar experience to that of Brother Branham. Heaven smiled on us that night during the campaign when we were also privileged to meet F.F. F. Bosworth, a veteran of the healing ministry in the earlier days. So William Branham, according to Man Sent from God, he meets F.F. F. Bosworth, at this meeting in Florida, at the exact same time, he meets Avok Hagopian in January 1948. And what is kind of interesting there is, again, we know that's actually not true. <laughs> William Branham had met, certainly we know he had met Avok Hagopian at least the year earlier and had actually already had meetings with him uh, yeah. then. So it kind of... The way that it's all packaged together there, it kind of gives the hint that there's more to this story than they're telling us. Probably some somebody has arranged all of this. Someone has definitely arranged William Branham coming into contact with, with F.F. Bosworth and Avok Hagopian. This wasn't a chance meeting. Somebody has put this together. Yeah, and if you really think about it, these revivals were show business. Back before the movie industry today is this powerful freight train that until COVID crippled the movie theaters, it, it was literally unstoppable. Well, back then, the revivals were so unstoppable. And we have evidence that the Kardashian family are the ones who sponsored Avoc Hagopian. And William Branham mentions the same people that brought Avoc down. They asked me to go to a place. So the Kardashian family are also working with William Branham. And uh, Tatos Kardashian's nephew, I believe it was, was Dima Shakarian, who worked with William Branham for almost the rest of William Branham's revival touring career. So all of these people are pulling the strings, so to speak, of Branham and Avoc and possibly Bosworth. And we have a photograph of William Branham, who is meeting with Avoc Hagopian for the first time, allegedly for the first time. But they're all converging literally because the Kardashian family are, are setting this up. And the question that forms for me was this being set up as a new business opportunity for entertainment, or was it really just religion, and were they just really focused on religion? I have to weigh in the balance of the scales who we're talking about. This is the Kardashian family. 
right? And and for me, just to keep it all in context, the the Kardashian family, their their elder members of their family, they were at the Azusa Street revival too, right? So right. they would have personally known Bosworth. Okay, so you you know kind of connect those things together. They would have personally have met and known Bosworth. Um, and they themselves were deeply involved in Pentecostalism from the very beginning. So, so they have a religious aspect to be interested in it as well. Um, and then the, the other aspect of it is that take these men in the Kardashian family and connected to the Kardashian family, these are actually the same men who are going to form the full gospel businessmen a few years down the road from this. So it is it is the man who the men who are going to become the main financers of William Branham's campaign in later years as the full gospel businessmen that are definitely sending Avoc Hagopian down to this meeting in 1948 and they also knew FF F. Bosworth as well so you know it's entirely reasonable for us to conclude that they may possibly have also suggested that Bosworth you know come to the meeting as well or even paid him to go there um, and a second thing that may have possibly brought it about, which I don't think we've, you know, really directly mentioned this yet, but, um, in, in a real clear way, but, uh, Gordon Lindsay grew up in Zion, Illinois, too, with his family. And it, it's entirely likely that they were, him and his family, who were also British Israelites, who had also come out of Zion, had been acquainted with with F. F. Bosworth too, and it's entirely possible that it's through Gordon Lindsay um, that um, F. F. Bosworth gets invited in to join. And you know, it, it it's not exactly clear how it happens, but somehow or another, someone is bringing all of these people together, and someone also has to be paying for all of this, right? Because this doesn't these things don't happen for free. Yeah, there's definitely more to the story than we're getting from this, and. There's, you know, Gordon Lindsay was a speaker who held conferences talking about British Israelism. So he's definitely involved in in spreading this notion. So he's he's also, again, deeply influenced by Dowie. So these guys are literally trying to rebuild the empire that Dowie himself had built that had crumbled. And William Branham is the new, basically the new Dowie, if you want to look at it this way. And we have a, even have a photograph, Charles is holding it up here, of the men standing around the tomb of Dowie. So these are, these are definitely men who are proclaiming the Dowie doctrine. And even in the voice of healing, they're going through the you know, the new religion as they're creating it, but they're advertising John Dowie in this new religion that they're forming. Right. Um, there, Dowie is, is treated as a hero by these men. Um, Gordon Lindsay has very good write-ups on Dowie in his magazine. They, end, they actually, Gordon Lindsay and F.F. Um, F. Bosworth end up taking William Branham to uh, Zion, and he's kind of gets a hero's welcome almost when he comes back to Zion. You know, the sons of Zion return, F.F. F. Bosworth and Gordon Lindsay, and they've brought a new Elijah with them. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's the first that I've been able to identify the notion of passing the mantle because William Branham goes to Zion and he says, John Alexander Dowie died on this one day, and then I was born the next. And he's literally talking about the passing of the Elijah mantle and where Dowie was advertised as Elijah back in his era, William Branham is literally becoming the new Elijah, and he's forming this notion at the 
you know, at the instruction of Bosworth, Bosworth is helping to create the next Elijah minister. Right. And and Bosworth and Lindsay, one or the other or both, you know, share even some prophecies that Dowie had given about a new coming Elijah. And he incorporated their stories into his sermon when he went to Zion to, to claim to be Dowie's successor in different ways. So, you know, it, it's very interesting. And Bosworth is – Bosworth just plays a very important role as these healing revivals take off. And remember, this is one month before the Latter Rain revival kicks off that, that Bosworth starts touring with him. And as I mentioned before, Bosworth is the one who would warm up the crowds. Uh, at the start of these revival meetings, he would generally preach, he would probably preach more than William Branham did at these meetings that were being held. He would do the, 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 the warm-up performance of the crowd. He'd preach about faith. He would share the teachings in his books. He would tell people what they needed to do to be prepared for divine healing. And he does this consistently and a lot all the way up into 1956 as this thing keeps getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, William Branham himself didn't do a whole lot of any sort of doctrinal preaching during this time at all. And really, Bosworth is the one who is shaping this movement's beliefs when it comes to divine healing, when it comes to um, word of faith, when it comes to positive confession. Bosworth is the main one shaping all of this. And William Branham is right there going along with it, and he, though, is the main draw. He's endorsing it. He's picking it up. He's sharing it. He's preaching it himself, um, and it, it it really is something uh, how how this grows. And, and Bosworth actually even wrote a chapter of William Branham's official biography, right? So there's – Bosworth is very, very integral in many ways to, to what's going on here in the early days of the revival, and I think Bosworth – you know, as you mentioned kind of at the beginning, you know, with some of these elements of what we believe can go back to Roy Davis, uh, a lot of elements of what we believed in the message also go go on the religious side go to Bosworth, right? He converts William Branham in some way over to some, some different ideas than what he had before. It's so complex because in some aspects of what happened, you know, in the years following, I see William Branham as sort of the mastermind of what was created. But it's complicated because at the same time he's a mastermind of some aspects of what happened. He's also the sponge who's absorbing things from Little David, who did the preaching before his Little David William Branham tours. David is replaced by Bosworth, and then Bosworth does most of the speaking. And we see that William Branham has absorbed these doctrines, and he goes forward with literally squeezing the sponge and just letting it spread throughout the revivals. And it's not just little David and Bosworth, but we see him absorbing Charles Taze Russell, Dowie, Bosworth. I mean, the names, the list of names goes on and on. Branham is this big sponge that's collecting notions from other cult leaders to form a later cult that would basically create all sorts of movements within American Christianity. And so while we don't have a, you know, a lot of details about Bosworth's life, there's a lot of things missing that I would love to know. I would love to know more about his time in, in Zion. I would love to know what he was doing those missing 10 years. You know, I would love to know, uh, honestly, a little bit more about, um, his healing revivals. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff I'd like to know more about F.F. Bosworth about. And so 
I myself, I'm still kind of on the fence with Bosworth making any kind of a, a judgment on him or his ministry. And I, I think, personally, I think he might have been a nice guy with some misguided ideas uh, and a man who had been intimidated by the Klan into maybe doing some things he otherwise would not have done. Uh, so, And I'm also not really aware of any allegations of abuse or mistreatment concerning Bosworth over the years. Uh, but he, he is definitely a huge, huge important influence into the message uh, and, and into the Word of Faith movement and into all of the stuff that ends up spawning out of uh, the healing revivals that happen in these years. Yeah, I too see Bosworth in much the same way. I don't see him as <clears throat> having much malicious, malicious intent. Um, he's just very, very influenced by John Alexander Dowie and probably influenced by his brutal beating and near death. I mean, they, they nearly killed him, the white supremacists. So he's got Dowie on one side of the scale. He's got white supremacists on the other side of the scale. And this molds his character. And that character heavily influences William Branham. So I, too, don't really cast judgment. I just see him as one of these interesting side stories. And Charles, I have seen <laughs> throughout the course of this one episode, I think I've counted seven different fascinating side stories that we could and probably should do. Yeah. And in our next one, we're going to start going a little deeper into how this stuff starts to impact the creation of word of faith theology um, and, uh, and, and William Branham and F.F. F. Bosworth's relationship uh, through the healing revival. And so, again, I would say after Gordon Lindsay, F.F. F. Bosworth is probably the next most important figure uh, in William Branham's circle uh, in the years of the healing revival. He's just a key figure in shaping and defining uh, some of the core doctrines of the healing revival, which eventually become the central teachings of the message. Those are my takeaways. Right. There's just so much here, and I'm really excited to get into the Word of Faith because there are so many people that are interested in learning how does William Branham connect to the Word of Faith. Because, again, all of these men have tried to—we're talking famous men, res respected in their various circles—have tried to erase their connection to William Branham, but yet their deep connections and their theology is— literally would not exist without William Branham popularizing the doctrines of Dowie. So there's so much we could get into, but we've gone way over. We're going to have to cut it short here. If you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the Healing Revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We've got a great episode coming.